you have your Bibles with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And this morning we are in our second sermon on the second half of the book of Ephesians. And we're getting into what it means to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And we're talking about a worthy walk. And really verses 1 through 16 is all about walking in unity. And this morning we're going to look at part one of a two-part sermon on this subtitle, Our Worthy Walk, A Life That Has a Specific Description. A life that has a specific description. And so I'll read verses 1 through 3, but we'll spend our whole time in the first part of verse 2 together this morning. Paul writes this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God, we pray to you at this time as we consider the fact that our chains are gone and we've been set free by your grace, God. That same grace that saves us is the same grace that sanctifies us. And as we're starting to look at what it means to walk in a manner of the calling to which we've been called, I pray, God, for your grace to abound more and more. I pray that you would help us to understand What you want us to understand today so that we might live like you want us to live today. May you fill this place with your presence as we dive into your word. And as you speak to us through scripture, areas that we need to change so that we might become more like Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I read about a man in New York City who died at the young age of 63 without ever having a job. He spent his entire adult life in college. During those years, he acquired so many academic degrees that they looked like the alphabet behind his name. Why did this man spend his entire life in college, you ask? Well, when he was a child, a very wealthy relative died who named him as a beneficiary in his will. And it stated that he was going to be given enough money to support him every year as long as he stayed in school. And it was to be discontinued when he had completed his education. And so apparently this 63-year-old man read between the lines. Stay in school, get money. Get out of school, make money. So he preferred to stay in school and just receive money, and he actually never landed a job. He chose to stay in school and receive the money that he had coming to him. The man met the terms of the will, but by remaining in school indefinitely, he turned a technicality into a steady income for life, something that his benefactor never intended. Well, unfortunately, he spent thousands of hours listening to professors and reading books, but never doing anything. He acquired more and more knowledge, but he never put it into practice. Well, this story reminds me of our passage in Ephesians 4 this morning. And we heard last week about how we are called to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. In the first half of Ephesians, we understand that we have a high calling That we have a high position in Christ and our walk ought to match that calling. And our practice ought to match our position in Christ. And so we're flipping here from the first half to the second half of Ephesians where Paul is very interested that we would walk in our normal everyday life in a manner worthy of that incredible calling to which God has called us to as Christians. And last week we talked a little bit about orthodoxy or the, the, the idea that you would have the right beliefs or the right doctrine ought to move you into orthopraxy, which is the right practice or the right behavior in light of those right doctrines. Last week, we even talked about a third word, orthopathy, which is the idea of having a passion or having, having a, a, an attitude of worship, having the right heart that we don't just practice out of duty in a mechanical way, but we practice out of a heart that wants to worship God and follow him with all of our effort and with all the things that we do. And so what we're seeing is in the second half of Ephesians, we're transitioning from the indicative to the imperative. We're transitioning from that verb tense that is a statement of fact. Here's what Christ has done for you. 
Christ died for you so that while you were dead in your trespasses and sins, he made you alive together in Christ. And so the idea that's an indicative, now we're moving into the imperatives, which you know are commands. And there's 40 imperatives in the second half of Ephesians where God commands you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And so the question for you this morning, church, is does your practice for Christ match your high position in Christ? Do you have the right doctrine? If so, what does your duty look like as a Christian? How is your walk today in your Christian life? Well, God has called you to have a walk that's worthy of the calling to which you've been called. It has a weight to it. It has a value to it. And if you have an incredible high calling, we should have that same conduct. Are you living out what you have learned? Don't be like the man who got all the degrees but never did anything with it in his life. That would be like a person who learns all about the Bible, but they never do anything with it. That would be like going to med school practicing uh, to be a doctor, but actually graduating and even passing the medical exam, but then actually never, never really practicing as a physician. That would be like going to law school and you graduate and, and, and you pass the bar, but you never take a case. That would be like going to a culinary art school, but never cooking a dish. That's a real tragedy right there. That would be like getting a teaching credential, but never teaching a class That would be like getting a college degree, but never getting a real job, pointing to all our college students this morning, all right? We want to get good jobs out of those degrees, but the idea is simply this, that getting information is good, but applying the information is better. Getting an education is good, but using your education is even better. Gaining biblical knowledge is good. But applying that biblical knowledge of God's word in your life is even better. How, you ask, can I live this way? How can I live in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called? Well, verses 2 and 3 give us five specific ways that we can practice that which Paul has been preaching. And so what we're going to see this morning is in these five specific ways are are, are clear, uh, very readily available ways that we can walk in this way. Verses 2 and 3 contain for us two prepositional phrases followed by two participle clauses. Altogether, in the midst of this context, most grammarians agree that this carries a distinctive imperatival sense. In the first prepositional phrase, is all we'll get to this morning, it simply says this in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness. So you see those two words, humility and gentleness, are, are, um, are joined together by the coordinating conjunction and. It's a simple combination here, which indicates that these two words have a lot of similarity. Notice he says, with all humility and all gentleness. So the idea is that to, to the greatest degree possible of these two words. That's the first uh, that prepositional uh, phrase there. The second prepositional phrase is the word with, uh, with, with uh, patience, right? So we got with humility, all humility and gentleness, and then with patience, that's what we'll look at next week, along with the two participle for, uh, clauses, bearing with one another in love, and then verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And so here we have five specific descriptions of how to walk a worthy walk. This morning, we'll look at the first two. Number one, humility. If you want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, you must have humility. Now, let's talk for a moment, if we can, about this word, and we're going to talk about it this way. Let's look at the marks of humility, and the first mark of humility would be to recognize that humility is uncharacteristic of the culture. Humility is uncharacteristic of the culture. In fact, this word humility did not really exist in the Greek language so much before New Testament times. This word means lowliness of mind. And so you're to think lowly of yourself, which just doesn't fly very much in a Greek culture. It's only used seven times in the New Testament. And this concept of thinking lowly of yourself, it's just under, it's, it's unacceptable for the Greek culture. It's well known that that culture and in Greek literature, that the word was only used on a few occasions, if it was used at all, and then it was used in a derogatory sense. 
in a derogatory way of, 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 of a servant or of, of somebody who, who had a sense of, of a weakness or a sense of shameful lowliness that just kind of cowered down and looked down upon themselves and they, they really looked down on this concept. Well, the truth is, not that much has changed. While our culture from time to time can value some degree of humility, we do live in a dog-eat-dog world where, uh, where being humble is often seen as a lack of confidence or a lack of aggressiveness or an absence of swagger. Arguably, the best player in the NBA today may be LeBron James. Now, I know some of you diehard Lakers fans would say it's Kobe Bryant but you guys need to move on. All right, so it's probably LeBron James, but he is not known so much for his humility, but rather for his great play on the court in basketball. He's also very familiar with being in the limelight and no doubt thinks very highly of himself. In fact, of February of this year, he claimed that he would definitely have a spot on the Mount Rushmore of the NBA greats by the time his career comes to a close. This four-time MVP stated that he is certain that he will go down as one of the league's four greatest players when he decides to call it quits. Listen to what he says. Quote, I'm going to be one of the top four to have ever played the game, James said, for sure. And if they don't want to have one of those top four spots, they better find another spot. We've got to bump somebody. Somebody got to get bumped. That's not for me to decide. That's for the architects to chisel somebody's face out and put mine up there. Not exactly humility, right? Good player, bad talker. All right, LeBron, just shoot the hoops, man. Don't, don't talk about what you're doing. And so the idea is that he's, that's not a picture of humility. And the idea of humility would be the opposite of those kind of statements, which obviously show a prideful heart. In fact, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, the word humility being used there, lowliness of mind, is used in contrast to self-seeking. It's used in contrast to vainglorious boasting. In 1 Peter 5, 5, it's used in contrast to the word proud. And while this word is a foreign concept in ancient Greece to think of yourself in a lowly way, it's not a foreign concept to the ancient Bible. For the truth is, according to Peter O'Brien, in the Old Testament, the adjective lowly or humble and its cognates occur more than 250 times. So while it wasn't common in Greek secular culture, it's certainly common in the Bible as a concept of what the Lord will do to those who are proud and arrogant, and he exalts the lowly or the poor who trust in him. And I believe that it's clear that we understand that uh, humility is the opposite of pride, which is really the very first sin that was ever committed was the sin of pride. We could consider how Satan himself tried to exalt his own name and his own agenda over God's. And we read about that in Isaiah chapter 14, where pride led Lucifer, the bright morning star, to say, I will in opposition to God's will. So God had him thrown out of heaven. We could read in Ezekiel 28 how Satan is convinced that he is a God, so the Lord cast him from the mountain of God. And so while that's how sin entered the world in a spiritual realm through Lucifer, it entered the world in a human realm, as we know, through Adam and Eve, who were convinced that their way was better than God's way. And so we're warned of pride again and again in the Proverbs. Consider Proverbs 11:2. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble is wisdom. Proverbs sixteen eighteen. Pride goeth before what? Destruction. How about Proverbs twenty one four? Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. And so we are seeing this morning that humility, our thinking lowly of yourself, it's just not a common characteristic uh, valued in today's culture. Not only that, but secondly, a second mark of humility would be this. Humility is an uncommon awareness of your own shortcomings. It's an uncommon awareness of your own shortcomings. Now, remember how Paul had already told us that uh, he is uh, the chief of sinners. We had read and talked a little bit about 1 Timothy 1.15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. 
And so we see this idea that Paul was very aware of the fact that he was a sinner. While he's saved by grace, he was still very aware. He writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And so there's this uncommon awareness of our shortcomings. shortcomings. Uh, The person who is truly humble is very painfully aware of their own shortcomings and their own sin. A humble person doesn't think that they're the best at anything but would quickly realize that someone else can do it better. A humble person acknowledges their limitations and is accurately assessing how help is needed to accomplish the goal. In this Christian worldview of humility, this is a a recognition of your own sinfulness or depravity combined with the repentant heart, which is aware that help is found only in Jesus. In fact, turn with me, if you will, to 1 John. So over to the right, towards the end of the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, and let's look at verse 8. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. Again, we're talking about how many of us sometimes are not aware of our own shortcomings. Well, 1 John can help us out with that in a brilliant way. Verse 8 of chapter 1. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, this is an example of true humility. I am a sinner. I need grace. I need help. And while you and I, maybe in the church setting, particularly if you're a Christian, may not, may not ever be so bold and brash to say, well, I don't have any sin. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And yet that's exactly what we do in a practical sense. If you were to be found in an argument in your marriage... I've read about these things, then you might be prone to think, well, I'm not in sin. It's the other person, right? It's not me. It's them. It's not, it's not me. It's my kids. It's not me. It's my work. And so we have the same temptation, even though we understand the gospel and that we really are sinners. Somehow in the midst of our sanctification, so often we're just like, well, I'm not in sin. Well, it's just not me. Well, I had a bad day. Well, I've got a headache. Well, I didn't get much to eat. Well, you got to stop and realize, you know what? I'm in sin. God help me. I need your help. I need the gospel because when I do sin, according to 1 John 2, 1, and I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone sins, that's you, that's me every day. But if we sin, guess what? He has an advocate for us. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus Christ is our advocate, and he's also our atoning sacrifice. Look at verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Understood there, those that would repent and believe in Christ, that he has become our advocate, he has become our atoning sacrifice, and this is the essence of true humility. I am a sinner. I need God's grace. I need help. The moment you get up and you forget to pray that way and you forget to think that way and you forget that it's not about you getting your things done that day. It's about you living for God. It's about his great love for you. Then you'll be walking in pride. And so not only do you need to confess this to God, but you need to confess it to others as well. Your wife and your husband and your children need to hear you regularly saying, you know what? I'm a terrible sinner, but I'm a great saint because I've been saved by the grace of God. You know what? At times I get angry, but by the grace of God, I'm forgiven and I'm learning to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which I've been called. You know what? I'm not perfect and I stumble in a myriad of ways, but I know God's grace is more than enough to help me to walk in a way that's worthy of the calling to which I've been called. Well, let me move on to a third mark of humility, if I can. Number three, it's unnatural exaltation of and submission to God in his word. What is humility? It's an unnatural exaltation 
of and submission to God and his word. Listen, it's not natural to exalt others over yourself. It's not natural to think that others know better than you do. It's not natural to yield to the instruction of another. Just ask the husband if he ever listens to his wife's directions when they're driving around in the car. Just doesn't come natural. Honey, I got this. Don't worry about it. Right? It's just not natural. It's not even natural in our sinful condition to stop and worship God and to sing songs that are all about His greatness and His sovereign reign and His rule over the universe. It's not natural for us. And yet, this is exactly what a humble person does. A humble person yields. A humble person bows low. A humble person acknowledges that we're men and women under the authority of someone else. Job learned this lesson the hard way. Turn with me, if you will, to the end of Job. You'll find it right before the book of Psalms in your Old Testament. But at the end of Job, you guys understand that while Job was a godly man and a righteous man and a respected man, uh, God allowed, God ordained, God caused, ultimately, not, uh, not for any reason other than to glorify himself, these trials in Job's life. And so Job had a really rough go at it. And while he maintained his integrity for quite a while, he eventually begins to blame God for being unjust in his plight. And so God, at the end of the book, begins to answer some of Job's questions very directly. And in chapters 38 through 42, we read about how God says, all right, Job, where were you when I created the heavens and the earth? Where were you when I told the oceans they could come this far and no further? Where were you when the mountain goats gave birth? Where were you when this and that and all these other things happened in his creation? To which Job obviously had to respond, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm nothing, I'm, I'm nobody. And then in verse uh, chapter 42, then we see his ultimate response here of Job. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My friends, that's being aware of your own shortcomings, and it's also exalting God and His Word and His instruction to say, God, whatever you want, whatever you call me to do, however I'm supposed to live, whatever mindset you expect of me, I want to have that kind of mindset. I want to repent in dust and ashes. I want to know that God is exalted highly above all else to the point that His plan and His will, and His directive, and His decree is always right and always perfect. Do I just want to exalt Him and follow Him? All that He says that I'm to do. We, we are called to submit to God in everything. And so if we're not submitting to God, that's an example or an illustration of our pride. And rather, we're called to be humble. Those are some marks of humility. Let me give you a couple of examples of humility. Some examples of humility. Let's start off talking about Moses. And we'll see there, I want, to, I want you to look at this example from Hebrews, the hall of faith. So turn there with me if you want at the end of your New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 11, we have recorded for us many faithful men and a few women who were faithful in a, living a life of faith. And then we see uh, Moses listed there in verse 24, where we read, uh, where we read this, uh, by faith, Moses when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So we understand from this passage, that while Moses was an Israelite, while he grew up as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, while he had everything at his fingertips, while he grew up with a hundred times the privileges of any other Hebrew, that he gave it all up like that because he considered the treasure of Christ better than the treasure of Egypt. We see him here as being a man of humility. Pride would have said, I want to live the comfortable life. Pride would have said, I don't want to identify with God's people because they're all slaves. 
Pride would have ignored the calling of Christ and immersed itself in the call of Egypt. But by the grace of God, Moses humbled himself. Moses obeyed God. And because of Moses' obedience to God, Moses became the deliverer of God's people. Because of his humility, Moses also became the mediator of God's people. And we'll read here in a minute. We'll look at it in a little little bit from Numbers chapter 12, verse 3. He was considered to be the most humble or the most meek man on the earth. And so we understand that this idea of having humility was true of Moses. Well, let's look at another example. How about David? Look at the example of David and turn with me, if you will, to 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, and then we'll look at that 2 Samuel passage, but 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6. This is the time where, where, uh, where, where, where Samuel came out, the prophet Samuel came out to call a new king because the present king, King Saul, was not proving to be a godly man. And so God was going to anoint this new king. And so Samuel, the prophet, comes to Bethlehem where Jesse and his sons live. And we read this in 1 Samuel 16, 6 and following, when they came, he looked up on Eliab. He looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So he looks at this first son of Jesse and said, man, that guy looks very kingly. That looks like a tall, strong dude, the kind of dude that would look like Saul, but be hopefully a better king than he was. But verse seven says this, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Verse 11. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? In other words, did did I get the right address? I've shown up. I've seen all your boys. God said no to every one of them. You got anybody else? And he said, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he is keeping the sheep. He was like, yeah, I got a little sheep boy in the back. And so Samuel said to Jesse, send for him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. And they sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And so what we're reading about here is the fact that everything David had was really a gift to him from God. David was a nobody. David lived in Bethlehem, yes, but he was the youngest of his brothers to receive the least of his inheritance. Someone that his dad certainly didn't think would be ever worthy to be the king of Israel. And yet we see that God chose him. Then we see David's humility in 2 Samuel. So turn over one book, if you will, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here we see David demonstrating great humility. Though he had accomplished much, he realized and recognized that it was all from God. And so in 2 Samuel chapter 7, after this Davidic covenant is given to him, after the fact that David had already killed Goliath. He had slayed many of the Philistines. He had done many great things. We read this in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? You ever felt that way? You ever just kind of sat back and seen where you are in life and you realize maybe God's given you a wife or maybe God's given you a husband or maybe God's given you kids. Maybe God's given you a nice house and a nice car and a rich heritage. And you just sit back one day and you're like, who am I, Lord? Who am I? I remember I was born as a nobody in the midst of nowhere. Didn't have a dime to your name, maybe. Well, it was the Lord in his goodness and his graciousness. Whatever you have, it's a gift from God. That's speaking of materially. Who were you spiritually? Before God, you were dead. You had nothing to brag about. You didn't have one redeemable aspect to your character or to your name. Who are you? Who am I that God would choose us and bring us this far? What a great reminder of a humble heart. Well, the ultimate example of humility is obviously the Lord Jesus himself. 
And if we had time to look at Philippians chapter 2, we were there on Resurrection Sunday, and we talked about how the fact that, that we ought to have humility of mind, just like Jesus did. And then in Philippians 2, 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I mean, you understand Jesus has always been God, part of the Trinity, and yet he didn't consider that something to be grasped. But rather, verse 7, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave or a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And he died a criminal's death. And we talked about on Resurrection Sunday, what humility that would take to go from heaven to earth, that he, did never, he never abandoned any of the attributes of his deity, but he did put on full humanity, fully God and fully man, to, to grow in the womb of Mary, to be born as a baby to a carpenter, to live a life in that family, and then to die the death that he died. What humility we see in Christ. And we're called to put on this same mindset in verse 5. We're called to let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. We're to walk in the same manner that he walked. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of humility. Well, now that we've seen some of the marks of humility and a few examples of humility, let's look at the rewards of humility. The rewards of humility. Number one, you will receive God's blessings. You will receive God's blessings. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want to know what, what humility gets you? It gets you heaven. The idea is that if you're poor in spirit, Christ said that you are blessed. That if you're blessed, you will receive eternal salvation. Jesus says you are blessed when you're humble. It is not as those, it's not those who think highly of themselves who inherit the kingdom of God. It's those who think lowly of themselves that inherit the kingdom of God. And so humility is about faith that God will come, uh, will come through in your situation. The idea is that you're to think of yourselves as poor and let God take care of it. I'm going to rest in Him and watch Him work in me and through me. I'm not going to try to do it in my own strength, do it my own way. I'm going to submit to God and I'm going to watch God work in this situation for His glory and I'm going to let Him fight His cause because I totally am dependent upon God. I'm going to have a poor, be poor in spirit. I'm going to be humble about it. A second reward of humility is God's grace you will receive God's grace, James chapter 4, verse 6, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So not only do you receive salvation as a part of your humility, if you're looking to Christ as your uh, redeemer and not your own effort, right? You also just receive grace. That's part of your salvation, but you see grace day after day in your life. And do you want to receive unmerited favor? Do you want to receive more grace? Then humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. And you cannot receive grace when you're proud, for your heart is so filled with yourself that you don't have any room for grace because you're doing it all yourself. But a humble person empties themselves of all of themselves. And they put on Christ. And Christ becomes their focus. Christ becomes their worship. Christ becomes their strength. They stop doing things their way. And they start doing things God's way. And so we see humility brings, brings inheriting the kingdom of heaven. It brings grace. How about this one? Number three, you will receive God's attention. You will receive God's attention. You may want to turn to this one in Isaiah chapter 66 verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. So what God is saying is like, look, I don't need another building. You can do whatever you want from me, but that doesn't really get my attention because I've got heaven and earth is my footstool. And so do what you want for me, but that's not really what I'm interested in. Second part of verse 2, but this is the one to whom I will look. Who? This is the one to whom I will look, he says. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isn't it interesting that those filled with pride are always trying to get somebody's attention. Those filled with pride always want to receive the accolades. They always want somebody else to notice. 
oh, you may not say it that way, but that's what you're thinking and that's what you're feeling. You're feeling like, man, I want to be noticed. I want to be recognized. I want, I want my name to be praised. It feels good. But notice the Lord says, no, no, you want, you want God's attention? Then be humble. Be contrite in spirit. And you now have got God's attention. Of course, I don't mean get his attention in a prideful way, like God noticed me, so I'm going to be humble. Then you just lost humility, right? The very moment you're trying to be humble in a prideful way, there goes that. But the idea is that you're just like, you know what? I'm nothing. I'm a nobody. May God crush my pride. God, you work in me through the gospel, the ability to be God-honoring in this relationship, to have integrity at work, to, 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 to discipline my kids in love, to be content with whatever you give me, because God, I, I find that you are more than enough than all that I need for life and godliness. This is an example of how humility would be truly that characteristic that would be on par with your calling. Well, the second characteristic out of five, number two, we'll look at the other three next week, is gentleness. Number two is gentleness. This word gentleness has a similar meaning to humility. Remember, the two are coupled together in that preposition, just separated by the word and, and the idea is it's with all humility and all gentleness, so to the greatest degree possible, and it has the idea here, this word gentleness, of mildness. It is the opposite of roughness. This word could also be translated as meekness. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. Many uh, modern dictionaries define the word as timid, And so if they think of the word gentle, or maybe even more specifically the word meekness, they would define that word in the English dictionary as timid or a deficiency in courage or spirit. But this is not the case with the definition of the Greek word as it's used here in the Bible. In the scripture, the word means mild-spirited and self-controlled. And the idea of being mild-spirited is not a bad thing. It's not seen as a weakness, but rather it's hinting at the fact that you have control over yourself and your your emotions in the midst of any given situation. It would be the opposite of vindictiveness or of vengeance. Uh, Let me give you a couple of marks to help you understand gentleness or meekness even more. So let's look at the marks of gentleness. The first one would be this, power under control. Power under control. And so gentleness does not mean powerless, uh, powerless, uh, but rather you have power. It's just under control. It's dialed in to be expressed at the greatest need, at the greatest time, and it doesn't just go out of control. The picture here may be that of a tamed animal. Maybe you've been to a circus and you've seen uh, a trainer train an elephant who has enormous strength to lift logs and to carry uh, large amounts of weight on, on its back or pull heavy objects. And then all of a sudden, it can like dance around a beach ball or, or hold a person in its trunk. And you're like, man, that's meekness. That's power under control. Or maybe you've been to a circus where you've actually seen a man's head enter the mouth of a lion where a lion would open its mouth and the trainer would stick his head in there and the lion wouldn't snap it shut and eat him up. I mean, the idea is its power is not been reduced. It just has control in the way that that power is used. This would be the same way that I might wrestle with my own children. I mean, you put me in the ring with a world-class boxer, I'm going to knock his block off. You know what I'm saying? I'm a Tyson, for crying out loud. All right? But you put me on the floor with my kids, and I take all that power, and I place it under the control of playing with the kids in a nice, gentle, caring way. This is the idea of meekness. And so when we think about meekness, we should think of it as a high and exalted characteristic that's accomplished through the gospel. There ought to be an incredible meekness or gentleness about you as you have power under control. Secondly, a second mark of gentleness or meekness would be this, a willingness to submit to an unfair situation a willingness to submit to an unfair situation. And here I'm thinking about 1 Peter chapter 2, where you had slaves or servants that were commanded to be subject to their masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to those who were unjust. So there were some slave masters who were good and gentle, the way they should be. There were other masters who were not. And God commanded the slaves to submit to them either way. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
For what credit is there when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. In other words, the idea is that even though your master may not be good and gentle, you are. You are going to be good and gentle. You are going to do the right thing. You might be tempted to fight back. Maybe you've seen some of those movies that are very heart-wrenching, obviously of a, of a slave that's being mistreated and he's going to attack the master. Uh, I can't stand to think about the, 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 the depth of that uh, level of humanity, but you understand the biblical calling even in that moment is that you have to be meek. You have to have power under control. And so if you're in a situation where you're being threatened unfairly, like you feel like you're in that situation at work or you're in that situation in your neighborhood or you're in that situation in your own marriage or with your kids that somehow somebody's coming in and cramping your space in an unfair way. You've got to be gentle. You've got to speak to them in a gentle way. You've got to demonstrate strength under control that you work through the situation, that you seek to resolve the conflict, that, that even if the situation can't be resolved because he's the boss and you're not, then you just obey God with a humble and a gentle heart. A third mark of gentleness would be this, having a right attitude toward unbelievers. Having a right attitude toward unbelievers. First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so the idea here is that um, I, I think that uh, as believers, sometimes we might be tempted to scoff at unbelievers. Um, that wouldn't be a godly way to deal with them. In fact, I think that the way uh, the, that many Christians are being accused of hate speech today is because many so-called Christians have actually given hate speech. They've actually spoken about someone in such a derogatory, inappropriate way. I'm not talking about compromising the truth. I'm talking about what Peter's talking about, even with unbelievers, you're to be gentle and you're to have respect. You speak the truth in love, but you respect the fact that that's another person that God created that you're trying to win to the gospel by your own gentleness and your own conversation with them. And you're not ranting and raving in a way that's out of control, demolishing your witness as a Christian. Well, those would be some marks of humility. Let's move now, or of gentleness rather. Let's move now to some examples of gentleness. I chose to stick with these same three of Moses, David, and Jesus. So with Moses, I told you already that in Numbers chapter 12, there was this place where the Bible talks about how Moses was the most meek or gentle man more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. And so that was at a time where Miriam and Aaron actually felt like maybe they needed more credit for what was happening and God's deliverance of Israel and getting them through the wilderness. And so they began to complain and God invited them to the tent. And he said, no, man, Moses is my man. Moses is the one of whom I've chosen to speak with face to face. And so Moses is the one who what he said about him, he didn't say Moses is a man of valor or a mighty courageous man, though he was. What he says of Moses is that he was meek. That was the characteristic that God said that was something they needed to consider because of the situation. They weren't being meek. They weren't being gentle. Moses was, and more so than anyone else who lived on the face of the earth. I wonder who number two is. Would that be you, sir? Would that be your wife? Would, would, would anybody in this room count as the second most meek person on the face of the earth? How about number three? Number four? Are we pretty far down on the list? Get, get the point is we have a lot of work to do as we grow and being, and being meek and being gentle, taking that power that God's maybe given us or enabled us and putting it under the control of the Spirit of God. And so Moses did not defend his own name. He allowed God to do so. Moses was described uh, by God as being the most meek person on the earth. How would God describe you? Maybe another example. I told you we'd go to David as well. David in 1 Samuel Chapter 24, this is the place where David had an opportunity to kill Saul. Remember, David had already been anointed as, as to be the next king. Uh, and so David had a chance when he was in En Gedi, when Paul went into a cave to relieve himself, David could have easily killed him. In fact, David's men were saying, God has now delivered Saul into your hands, kill him. And all David did was cut off the corner of his robe. Remember that? And he went back and he felt guilty about that and said, who am I to lay a hand on the Lord's anointed? 
This is an opportunity, and David exercised meekness. He had an opportunity to kill Saul, and yet he knew it wasn't God's timing, and so he chose not to kill Saul. Same thing when David did not attack Shimei. In 2 Samuel chapter 16, there was this ranting complainer named Shimei who was making fun of David and his men, and his, uh, David's mighty men said, hey, you want me to kill that guy? I'll like chop his head off like that. And David could have easily said, yeah, kill him. But instead he said, hey, if the Lord's ordained that he would be complaining and be bothering us, then you let him do it. Maybe there's something God wants to teach us in this. What meekness had the power to get rid of a situation, but allowed it to go and rather sought to learn from the Lord. So are you willing to trust in the Lord? Are you willing to wait on the Lord? Are you willing to be gentle and meek under any circumstance in which God places you? How about the ultimate example of Jesus? who said this in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For I t- take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am, what? Gentle. For I am gentle. This is what Jesus says about himself. I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mean, you know what a yoke is, right? Can you imagine being yoked up to some wild oxen? Would that be very gentle? Maybe be jerking you around. But Jesus is saying, no, no, yoke up with me. I am gentle. I am lowly in mind. I will, I will help you find rest. If you're yoked to Christ, you find rest because Christ is the epitome of meekness or of gentleness who will lead you and guide you and help you and equip you and strengthen you. He's not going to jerk you around, but he's going to guide you into all righteousness as he empowers you to overcome the evil one. Well, let's look at a couple of the rewards of gentleness. Here's some rewards that we could talk about. Number one, if you're gentle, you don't have to be afraid. If you're gentle, you don't have to be afraid. The temptation would be, well, well, if I'm not strong enough in this situation, I'm going to be taken advantage of. So I got to be strong. Well, 1 Peter addresses that in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It talks about the believing wife being married to the unbelieving husband. And the believing wife is called in that passage to have a gentle and quiet spirit that she's to submit to her husband and submit to the Lord and adorn herself by the hidden person of the heart, right? And then we're told in verse 6 of First Peter 3 that if she is acting that way, walking that way, obediently gentle, then you don't have to fear anything that is frightening. In other words, you don't have to be afraid of what your husband might do to you because ultimately you're under God's control. You don't have to fear what, however the people perceive you. You do what God's called you to do. And if you do what God's called you to do, being gentle, then you don't have to have any fear. Second reward of gentleness would be this. Number two, you shall inherit the earth. How about that? I mean, uh, Jesus said in uh, Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so the idea, the reward of having this characteristic is a demonstration of the gospel at work in your life, and you will inherit the earth. This has to do with the future reward when Christ returns of all the earth. Number three, third reward, you shall obtain fresh joy. You think meek is a weakness? Meekness is a weakness? No, it's a way to be filled and to obtain fresh joy. Jot down Isaiah 29, 19. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord. You need a little fresh joy today? Try being gentle. Try being meek. Try exercising self-control as one of the fruits of the Spirit. I mean, the truth is, if you're fighting and clawing and striving to get your way and to get an upper end, that's stressful. And it will burn out your joy and you'll always be anxious. But if you're resting in God, demonstrating true gentleness and meekness as you rest in Him and as you're yoked to Christ, then you will obtain fresh joy because you know it's God working in you. Well, a couple of take-home principles that we could talk about maybe amongst yourselves, with your family, with the guests that are in your home today, would be this. Number one, humility may be uncharacteristic of our culture, but it should be the chief characteristic of every Christian. Many would say the fact that this 
passage starts with humility is it, it encompasses all the others. Starts with humility, and that builds up to gentleness, which builds up to patience, which builds up to forbearance, which builds up to unity. And so the idea is that you don't have the right, by the way, to assume that just like the spiritual gifts are given in a myriad of ways, you might be thinking, well, some are given to be teachers, and some are given to be evangelists, and some are given to be pastors, and some are given to be this and that. So maybe humility, I just didn't get that gift. Just didn't get that one. So I'm kind of low on that one. No, you, you, you got to have that gift. It's a characteristic of every Christian. You may think it doesn't come natural to you. Well, I was raised in a hard home and my dad was never humble. And he always argued and yelled at me and it just doesn't come naturally. Well, as a Christian, it's got to be your chief characteristic because that's the work of the gospel in your heart that you surrender your whole life to God in him saving you and then in him sanctifying you every moment of every day. How about number two? Gentleness may not come naturally to you, but it is natural to Christ who lives in you. So again, if you're saying, well, I'm just not a gentle person. I mean, I'm just kind of a man's man. And when I speak to my wife, I say, honey, cook dinner now. That's just the way I am. No, you may say it doesn't come naturally to you, but it does to Christ. So if you are in Christ and Christ abides in you, you are commanded to be gentle. And with being yoked to Christ, you can speak to your wife and your children and people at work in a gentle way. You can have power that's under control by the grace of God through the Spirit of God to help you live in a way that's truly gentle. Number three, ignoring the humility and gentleness the gospel produces in a changed life will cost you more in time, effort, and heartache than you can ever imagine. You think it's hard to be humble or gentle? Try not being humble. Try not being gentle, and it will cost you more in time to clean up your mess, more in effort to repair that which has been broken, and more in heartache than you can ever imagine. May God help us all this day walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. And we're starting off with learning what it means to be humble and to be gentle. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity and the reminder of looking at this text of Scripture, which highlights these two characteristics that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray on this day you would allow those of us here to walk in this this description. God, we want to look to Christ and we want to walk in all humility and in all gentleness this day. May this message, this truth, this scripture impact our lives. May it change the way we talk and the way we think and the way we interact that we would focus on and meditate on this passage this week, that we would guard our mouths, that we'd be careful in how we interact with one another so that on this week and for the rest of our lives that our conduct would match our calling, producing us this kind of Christ-like humility and this kind of Christ-like gentleness, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.